Welcome to episode 13 of Garner's Greek Mythology. Our entire episode today is about Hephaestus. It's a name we hardly know, and it's spelled a half a dozen ways. Of all the Greek gods, he was the only one worthy of being called a genius. I, I call him the Leonardo of his time. But Hephaestus, what an unfamiliar name. Let's try another one you've probably heard. How about the god Vulcan? Welcome to Garner's Greek Mythology. This is Patrick Garner. I'm a mythologist and author of three best-selling novels. They constitute a trilogy and have one theme, that the ancient Greek gods are here and that they never left. Imagine with me that they were never myths. You can read more about my novels and this podcast at patrickgarnerbooks.com. I'll note that in my book, Homo Divinitus, Hephaestus uses his endless ingenuity to help the great goddess fulfill her mission in the contemporary world. As always, the series will focus on one thing, Greek gods, of course. In this episode, we feature Hephaestus. A moment ago, I mentioned Vulcan. That was the name the Romans gave him. They renamed almost all the Greek gods, so no surprise there. Some scholars who study the origin of words say Vulcanus relates to the Latin word for lightning, which in turn relates to flames. And from Vulcan, we get volcano, which makes sense as he's the god of fire. It's all a bit obscure, but in the end, it works. Enough, though, of Vulcan. We'll refer to this ingenious god as Hephaestus. After all, it's what the Greeks called him for more than a thousand years. Hephaestus was one of the 12 Olympic gods, perhaps the son of the ultimate power couple, Zeus and Hera. Or, as we'll see, perhaps not. Greeks referred to him as the shrewd one, the smith, or the coppersmith, or simply the lame one. However politically incorrect the phrase is today, the ancient Greeks used it commonly. The poet Homer referred to him as shriveled of foot. Ancient writers differed on what caused it. One story was that Zeus flung him from the heavens as Hephaestus tried to rescue his mother from Zeus's advances. He fell for an entire day, finally landing on the island of Lemnos in the northern Aegean Sea. He twisted his foot as he landed. But Homer attributed his weakness to his birth. And if that's the case in this version too, he's thrown from the heavens. But rather than being thrown by Zeus, it's his mother who gives him the toss. With his crippled foot, he lacked the perfection she demanded. In that version, he fell into the sea and was raised by Thetis, who was a Nereid, a minor divinity somewhat equivalent to a mermaid. Thetis was the mother of Achilles, one of the greatest warriors in Greece's history. In time, Hephaestus was to make Achilles, a famous shield which he used in the Trojan War, and more on that in a minute. Regardless, upon arriving on Lemnos, 
Hephaestus constructed a magnificent workshop beside the island's volcano. He was made of bright bronze and oak, and there his genius began to blossom. But before we speak of his achievements, let's stay a bit longer with his origin story. His birth mother was Hera, Zeus's wife. Homer implies that Zeus was Hephaestus's father, but the poet Hesiod, writing about the same time, says otherwise. Hesiod says that Hephaestus had no father, that Hera conjured him on her own. That sounds like magic, but that's not what he meant. You may remember the story of Gaia when she first appeared, she was the original and only being. Then through a process called parthenogenesis, which is reproduction without fertilization, she created Uranus, her male partner. Years later, according to Hesiod, Hera became infuriated with Zeus when he gave birth to Athena without her. And again, you may remember that Athena sprung fully grown from Zeus's head. In revenge, Hera created Hephaestus to show Zeus that two could play at this game. As you see, his birth had nothing to do with love and everything to do with the constant rivalry between husband and wife. It's horrendous, really. Either Hephaestus was the hated child of Zeus and Hera, or he was the child of Hera alone, created solely as divine payback and then swiftly given the boot. Whatever the reason, Hephaestus was exiled from Olympus, tossed without ceremony from the heavens. But he got his revenge, eventually returning in full power and on his own terms. How did he do it? He made Hera a golden throne, which she found irresistible. When she sat on it, she became unexpectedly bound to the seat. It was as if she were lashed down by invisible ties. After a while, the other gods begged Hephaestus to return to Olympus to release her, but he refused, saying, Why? I have no mother in all of existence. And you may remember, this is his moment of revenge for her tossing him from the heavens. After all, he was the son of Hera. At last, Dionysus, the god of wine, went down to Lemnos and challenged the god of fire to a drinking contest. The two got increasingly drunk. Dionysus, reputed to be as strong as a bull, threw the intoxicated Hephaestus onto the back of a donkey and hauled him up to Olympus. There he was persuaded in his compromised state to free his mother from her magical bounds. In return, Zeus allowed him to stay. In a short order, Hephaestus created a second workshop within Olympus's vast rooms. What did Hephaestus create that made him so famous? His inventions were seemingly endless and his ingenuity unrivaled. Homer wrote that Hephaestus maintained 20 bellows between his forge on Lemnos and the 
larger version on Olympus. In those workshops, he created the staff and shield of Zeus, the winged helmet and sandals of Hermes, and secret locking doors for Hera's bedroom chambers. I already mentioned the famous shield of Achilles carried by the warrior onto the battlefield of Troy. It was made of gold, bronze, tin, and silver. Not only was it impenetrable, it depicted the earth, the sky, the moon, and the constellations. It displayed vast fields, herds of cattle and sheep, and people dancing. And it depicted these things so successfully that those who saw it said it showed in photorealistic detail the entirety of the known world. And his inventions went on and on. He created the golden chariot that Helios, the sun god, rode each day in an arc across the sky. What else? Hephaestus made Zeus's thunderbolts. Each was crafted like a missile to do maximum harm wherever they hit. He made specialized tools for Heracles, arrows for Eros, and the crown worn by Ariadne when she married Dionysus. And remember Prometheus? He was the titan who gave man fire, and in a fury, Zeus chained him to a cliff for eternity and ordered Hephaestus to make the chains. In an earlier episode, I mentioned Pandora. You may recall she was the first woman. She was sculpted by Hephaestus out of clay. Astonishingly, he also made robots. The Greeks called these automatons, or automata. They were considered both intelligent and industrious. Some were helpers who wielded hammers at his forge or carried heavy objects. Others operated his mighty bellows, keeping them fed with fuel and the metals he required to craft armor and machinery. Interestingly, a number of the automatons were maidens made of gold, young women who could sing, speak, and converse at will. But he hardly stopped at that. He also crafted bronze bulls, fire-breathing horses, barking guard dogs, and eagles, all made as gifts for favored gods or mortal kings. Homer wrote in the Odyssey of a certain Venetian palace, on each side of the door were gold and silver watchdogs, deathless forever and never aging, which Hephaestus, with his wit and cunning, had fashioned as guardians for the great house. In my book, Homo Divinitus, he even creates an alternate world of mysteries that allows the great goddess to achieve her vision. Hephaestus was as skilled with weapons as he was with his creations. Remember that Athene was born wearing armor and sprang fully grown from Zeus's head? Well, it was Hephaestus who swung the battle axe that split open Zeus's head. And it was at the moment of Athene's birth that Hephaestus began 
uh, what was to be a strange and often awkward relationship with the goddess. I say awkward. Okay, let's talk about his ties with Athena. His most memorable interaction with the virgin goddess was driven by lust. It was during his pursuit of her one afternoon that one of the first Athenian kings was created. Athena appeared at his forge during the Trojan War with a routine request. She needed some weapons. Hephaestus, seeing her bright beauty, was overcome by desire. Poseidon had set him up, saying that Athena was coming and hoped to be wooed by the fire god. Hephaestus tried to seduce her then and there. She fled. He pursued her to a field near present-day Athens. She got away. But from the ground where they struggled, a child who would be named Erichthonius sprang up. Athena discovered the boy after Hephaestus left the scene. Unwilling to abandon him, she left him in a basket on the Acropolis in the care of the king's eldest daughter. Athena's instructions were simple. Guard the sacred basket and don't look under the lid. The daughter's curiosity, of course, overcame her and Joined by her mother and sister, the three peeked in. When they did so, they saw a snake coiled around the divine infant. And they saw something else, something else. We can't be sure what it was, but it drove them instantly mad. In their frenzy, they threw themselves off the Acropolis, hundreds of feet to their deaths. This tale is similar to that of Pandora's box. It's interesting that both Pandora and Erichthonius involve Hephaestus. In Pandora's case, she too was told not to lift the lid. When she did, all of the evils that now beset the world flew out in a horrible roar. Perhaps these stories are a reoccurring lesson to mortals about disobeying divine orders. But regardless, Erichthonius grew to manhood and usurped the king. And in doing so, he founded a bloodline that continued through the elite families of Athens for more than a millennium. In celebration of this hallowed ancestry, the Athenians built a magnificent temple to Hephaestus in Athene. Begun in 445 BC, it's now called the Temple of Hephaestus and is the best preserved ancient temple in the world. I saw it one morning in the Agora Colonus in the heart of Athens. It no longer held the celebrated bronze statues of Hephaestus in Athene. Those have disappeared, but the architecture remains a glorious tribute to the two divinities who played such a crucial role in the founding of Athens. In an earlier episode, I mentioned that Hephaestus was married to Aphrodite. 
How did this God, who was far from physically perfect, marry the most beautiful goddess of all? When Hera was snared by Hephaestus on that golden throne, Zeus was so distressed that he promised that whomever could release his wife could marry the lovely Aphrodite. When Hephaestus appeared in his intoxicated stupor, he released Hera, but to Zeus's shock, had the presence of mind to immediately call for Aphrodite's hand in marriage. Zeus imagined she might marry the handsome Apollo or the stealthy Hermes, but he couldn't retract his word, and so he granted Hephaestus's wish. But marriage does not ensure happiness. Aphrodite dallied secretly with Ares for many years. The two even had children, all of whom became trouble of one kind or another. Was Hephaestus jealous of the infamous affair? His actions indicate he was. In the same way that he had captured Hera in the Golden Throne, he caught the two lovers in bed in an invisible net. Homer writes that when the trap closed, Hephaestus bellowed to Zeus and the others, Come, you will see the pair of lovers now as they lie embracing in my bed. Then in a choked sob he cried, The sight of them makes me sick at heart. In her nakedness, Aphrodite begged her husband to release her. To Hephaestus' delight, the gods all laughed. Eventually, he let the two go. Perhaps that incident was what drove him to create his golden maidens. After all, they could sing and entertain him as Aphrodite would not. Indeed, the fire god had many ways to get revenge. And there was more to Hephaestus. He was, he was also a brilliant architect. He designed and built all the mansions used by the other gods. In his endless ingenuity, he built the underwater palace used by Poseidon with its immense horse stables and rolling fields, all sealed from the seas. His cleverness easily made up for his displeasing appearance. And when I say displeasing, I, I hardly exaggerate. The other gods openly called him ugly. But none of this seemed to bother women. He was variously married to a goddess and to one of the three graces. He also had affairs with nymphs and mortal women, all of whom bore him sons and daughters. He was masterful in whatever he did. And until Leonardo da Vinci was born in 1452, no man even approached his originality. When Rome finally conquered Greece in 146 BC, the victors set about rewriting history, or we could say rewriting his story. The Romans portrayed him as a far more violent god than he was. He was named Vulcan of the Volcanoes, and his forges were now associated with Mount Etna, a dangerous volcano in Italy. The volcano's destructive fury became his, but the Romans had no more power to change his character than Hera had to release herself from Hephaestus' magical throne. 
Finally, he, like so many of the Olympians, slipped away. The Romans could use his attributes and claim him as theirs, but he was tired of it all. He was a Greek. His inventions were for Greek gods and for Greek kings and for Greek heroes. As you'll read in my book, Homo Divinitus, he re-emerges in our time on the island of Delos, shrewd and as inventive as ever. In our next episode, we meet the wine god Dionysus, who in his flamboyance brought wine and theater to the world and gave women ecstasy as they danced with him on moonlit nights. Hey, by the way, if you like what you hear, let me hear from you. You can reach me at patrickgarnerbooks.com. I'd love to hear what country you're from and what you think of the episodes as a whole and any individual episodes. And if you have anything you want to ask me to do, let me know. And I'd love to hear when you're listening to these. Are you uh, out on a run? Are you in a school class? What drives you to listen to episodes on mythology? Reach out. Let me know. Thanks. Be sure to visit patrickgarnerbooks.com or find me on Amazon. My three novels are set in today's world and feature Greek gods who meddle and maneuver as they always have.